This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organization. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions.org. Tonight we're going to Oslo. Per Espen Stockness is a famous Norwegian psychologist and entrepreneur, and he's getting up at 6 a.m. to talk to us about a new psychology of climate action. That's uh, part of his book. And so I have two psychologists with us in the studio, Lynn Bender and Susie Burke, and my name's Vivian Langford. We'll start with uh, Per Espen. There's a lovely quote inside the cover of your book from Paul Gilding. He, He quoted Mahatma Gandhi, who said, First they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight, and then you win. And according to Gilding, in talking about your book, he said, look, we're in the last phase, the fight. And to win, we need to change tactics from using guilt, which draws attention to the problem of climate change. But we should now use persuasion to change behavior and policy at a mass scale. So Perez Benstockless shows the way with this brilliant description of how to go with rather than against the flow of human nature and thus shift society to action. And I'd like to welcome you, Per Espen, to our radio show. Thank you so much for your warm words and introductions. Looking forward to this conversation. <laughs> Just tell us, what's the weather like in Oslo at the moment? Oh, it's utterly brilliant. <laughs> uh, we've had some few weeks of uh, just wonderful spring uh, weather here now, and uh, it's uh, outside. It's an uh, amazing um, early sunrise. Oh, how beautiful. Well, we're in winter here in Melbourne. Um, I'd like to um, introduce you to Lynn and Susie. Lynn has been the manager of a suicide prevention phone service called Lifeline, and uh, she'll be speaking to you first. We've all been affected by your book and want to explore this new psychology of shifting society towards climate action. First of all, can you explain the title of your book? It's called What We Think About When We Try Not to Think About Global Warming. Yeah, it, playing on this doubleness in our human nature that we um, kind of think about it, but we prefer not to think much about it. The pun is that we're reacting in a double uh, level that makes us uncomfortable. I started this year's radio shows. You know, New Year, a Paris conference seemed to have set us up for something new. And I said to the listeners, I hope this year and the following years are all about restoration, replanting, rehabilitation, mm. rebuilding. And I was thinking about the peat fires in Indonesia, which are very close to us, you know, schools and people evacuated all over the Malay Peninsula because of that. Now the tar sand fires in Alberta. These are the things that need to be stopped and then rehabilitated. 
you're an entrepreneurial type of person and your book gives a lot of practical information and I wondered how can we galvanise people to see all this work of restoration that needs to be done? What you're mentioning with all this restoration and, and uh, the, the need to get um, on the side of nature, so to speak, and help it uh, become even more resilient than it is and the rewilding of it is, as I see, one of the important new stories of our time uh, where we shift from a domination nature to kind of collaborate with it. And uh, part of the solution is this work of shifting the narrative or shifting the story uh, in our culture uh, from the previous century, which was dominated by um, a story of the way forward is really... um, Using industry, um, trade markets uh, to to increase our consumption because that is what really makes people's well-being better. Um, and we see that story has been weakened, and new stories that give meaning to politicians and and meaning to uh, the public and meaning to business is emerging that um, uh, maybe copying nature or being partnered with nature and rewilding it and restoring it uh, is now more the way forward. Uh, so I think it's a terribly important story that we need to uh, tell in a positive way along with uh, supporting framings and uh, simple actions that people can take to kind of validate it and, and spread it so it spreads like ripples uh, in water. Yeah, that's what we all want, the ripple effect, the going like wildfire, going viral. We want all of those images but there's still a stodgy mass of people who say too hard, don't care or I don't know, frightened of it all. Absolutely, and uh, this is the doubleness of it. And so that's why I started in the book writing about the main barriers to action. Why is it that uh, even though we see these stories and these uh, other frames being used, why does it take so long? Why is there such a resistance in us? And this is where I think psychology comes into the picture, really, because um, rather than using um, shouting loud or using the whip or telling people they're stupid or wrong, uh, we need to be very aware of the barriers that have been erected in us as we've heard about uh, the glooming catastrophes and the climate problems, um, they, they, they tend to just reinforce the barriers rather than help us move around them. Well, yes, I, I really liked what you said about the barriers and the one that because I do radio, I'm very interested in is media and the right-wing media here is flooding our minds with denialism, even though I had hoped denialism would have sort of died down. But it's alive and well. Anyway, look, I'm holding up the local newspaper, but this is shocking. This is just yesterday, Mm. and we've got a a right-wing journalist here called Andrew Bolt who churns out this stuff all the time, but he said it's time to declare war on global warming extremists, the alarmists, the Marxists, and other Mm -hmm. leftists who have seized control of our universities. Now, I, Mm. I guess this is not new to you. You said uh, climate change is the new Marxism. So, how can we neutralise this man? <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Well, good point because uh, you can't convince him. You know, um, he's no. obviously um, taken this to be uh, a defining issue for himself in terms of uh, this is this is his core identity or his persona, as I would say. Uh, and when you get to that point, uh, there is no use, actually, as I see it, uh, um, 
trying to debate or, or convince. Um, so rather than putting up a heroic fight where we will beat them or, or enter into the war he's calling for, I think we should rather just uh, move around these barriers by uh, using the, the, the going along with the solutions that we know from psychology and social science actually work in getting people on board. Yes. So um, that's what I outlined uh, in the book, and I'm happy to talk you through it one by one. Uh, but uh, and that's my general approach. I, I found these these guys hard, die-hard uh, climate contrarians, uh, kind of uh, amusing. And I'm, <laughs> and you know, you could go with them in a way just as, as well and say that. Well, really, you know. It would be so wonderful if you were right that global warming is uh, is just a mistaken uh, notion, um, wouldn't it? That way we would we would have been free to you know not worry anymore about uh, that kind of uh, future. But uh, it's completely irresponsible to ignore. Uh, the, the, even if we're happy that there is one or two percent of people, of scientists thinking differently. Uh, uh, just like uh, ignoring uh, the advice of uh, 98% of all doctors to our health, that would be completely irresponsible. Mm-hmm. So, so for the, in the say in the in the name of um, multiplicity and and um, uh, plurality, uh, I think I mean, we should be happy there are people thinking otherwise. But we can't spend our time. Uh, no. uh, digging in there well to tell you I didn't buy this newspaper I just found it on the tram and I opened it and I couldn't think how lucky I'm reading your book Climate's the New Marxism and there we have alive and well an example of this sort of journalism but look now I'd like to introduce Lynn um um She's a psychologist and she's been the manager of a lifeline service we have here for people who are wanting to commit suicide or at the end of the road and she is very skillful with that sort of thing and I'd like her to talk to you about reframing the climate message in this time when we really need an emergency mobilisation. So, Lynn? Hi. Um, thanks, Per Stockness. I really enjoyed your book. That's odd, isn't it? Because I really enjoy books about climate change. Um, they're, they're, as you say, they fill you with anxiety and guilt and dread and helplessness a lot of the time. If you stay abreast of the facts, which is necessary, and then you read a lot of the um, responses from government and um other people who have an investment in keeping things the same. So I want to thank you. And I found your book was almost like a therapeutic encounter in that you validate all the seriousness of it. You don't, you don't uh, steer away from it, but you also don't go into panics, which is kind of what you do in crisis counseling. Um, you never quarrel with the perception of the, of the calamity, but you also then move on to realistic hope, which I also valued your discussion of hope and different kinds of hope. So I, I guess with the reframing, I think that what I find difficult is to strike a balance between informing people who are totally unaware, it seems, in blissful ignorance, Um, And yet, not overdoing, as you put it, the doom and gloom, which, you know, hell hell fire and brimstones will descend. Um, And yet, um, I think that anxiety about not scaring the horses has often been an analogy used. And yet the horses seem to be very calm, just dozing away there. 
and that's what worries me a little bit. We've sort of defined... How, how do you suggest we... I know I'm asking you to explain your entire book in which you do this, actually, but for the listeners, what could you say is the way through that? I think we should start with the awareness of our Christian culture, so to speak. Um, mm. We've had a thousand or two thousand years of uh, apocalypse. Uh, it's in the end of the main, main book of our culture, the Bible. And uh, the, the topic of catastrophe and apocalypse very easily resonates with our psyche due to this cultural barrier or cultural uh, heritage we have. Um, and um, I'm not saying to, we should avoid the factual information. I'm not saying we should drop um, speaking about the seriousness of the situation. Uh, what I'm arguing for is a kind of balance of the framings. And first of all, becoming aware of this un- often unconscious apocalyptic framing we bring to the climate issue. So we we become like you know the end of my end is my. Um, doomsday prophets very easily, not in our own minds necessarily, but in the perception of the people who are listening to it. So how, what is a balance? Um, uh, some s- researchers at uh, Oxford University um, Institute of Journalism found that more than 80% of all media uh, articles about climate change were employing the catastrophe framing. So people have, over the last decades, when they hear about climate change, it has been deeply in our minds, cognitively linked with catastrophe. I think we should aim for a balance. So it is true that if we continue our current trajectory, our world will warm in very dangerous ways. And it is also the case that there are so many smart solutions, so many possible ways of living that are better for us and better for the climate. I I'm, I'm feel pretty confident that we'll do the turnaround. We only need to make these more accessible to people, understand they don't have to give up what they value in life, their mobility, their eating habits, their way of... We can, they can have even better lives, better health, better eating, and at the same time be in service and connection with the, with the climate. What emerges from the literature is rather than having 80% customers we need, let's say, at least 75% on the solutions, uh, and this should be framed in terms of the benefits to our health. Uh, it should be um, framed in terms of uh, the insurance uh, approach, where we are not sure that the world is going to burn down, but just as if we have uh, fire insurance on our houses, we also need to take out a climate insurance. So it's not expensive to deal with climate, it's just plain common sense in the same that we have fire and theft insurance, we should have climate insurance. And finally, uh, all the fantastic, amazing solutions that creative people and communities come up with, anything from community solar to batteries to bikes to um, carbon uh, positive agriculture, uh, reforestation, rewilding, as, as was mentioned earlier. So this is better for nature and better for humans, uh, and it's even better for business, uh, as more and more studies are showing uh, that the climate smart solutions are actually profitable. And this is what we should be talking about. Okay. Insurance, health, and all the opportunities for revitalization of our communities through climate smart solutions. Okay. Sleep at last as the streets are round you. 
you. We're talking to Per Espen Stockness in Norway, and our third guest in the studio is psychologist Susie Burke. Now, Susie, I didn't introduce you at the beginning. Could you just say uh, what you do? And and you're going to talk to Per. We're still in part two of your book, Per, but Susie would like to talk to you about this chapter called Make It Simple to Choose Right. Susie? Mm. Thank you, Vivian. And hello, Per, and thank you for joining us, and hi, Lynn, as well. Uh, yes, I'm a psychologist, and I work with the Australian Psychological Society, which is our peak body of psychologists in Australia, and I work on climate change and on natural disasters, so those are my two favourite topics. And Yes, uh, like Lynn, I did also thoroughly enjoy reading Poe's book, but unlike Lynn, I love reading any book about the psychology <laughs> of climate change, so I knew I was going to be in for a good read. Yeah, I was going to ask um, about uh, a particular chapter of your book, but before that, I just wanted to follow on from what you were talking about in, in answer to Lynn's question. In Australia at the moment and in other parts of the world, there is talk about ramping up the, the climate emergency narration as a way of getting governments to really fast track some very significant climate policies and I'm just Mm. wondering if you could talk about how that fits with what I also agree is a very important um, framing which is to be talking about the co-benefits of taking action on climate as being also good for your health and good for for community well-being and, and strong communities. Well, the urgency, I would like to say, is is real. And I think if we could frame it more like in terms of uh, for the policymakers who are uh, often deeply concerned about the competitiveness and national uh, regional attractiveness, showing that we have this shift from in the in the economy from the underlying traditional labor productivity and and competitiveness of trade to a competitiveness in terms of resource productivity in the sense that those companies and those regions that uh, are able to innovate and create conditions for um, better resource productivity actually is uh, heading towards uh, the new competitiveness in a world that is filled with people but with less resources, the, the 21st century dynamic, so to speak. And this is why, if you, as long as you argue that we should change because of climate change, you'll find a lot of reluctance. But if you say we should change because our communities will be better, health will be better, and the industry will be more competitive, uh, that kind of brings more, much more people and alliances on board. So that's why I advise against, against going just with the climate emergency uh, logic, because then you're putting yourself into a, a policy corner where you'll probably lose. Mm, yeah, thank you. Let's move on now to the question of narratives. I think practically every social movement is about changing the narrative, isn't it? We need to change the story. And you mentioned the great Christian apocalyptic narrative that has really flooded our mind, and we really are in that mindset. So Mm. I sort of um, interview a lot of scientists, and I interviewed an Antarctic scientist, and he explained... You know, the work they do, very vital work in Antarctica. And he explained to me about the Great Southern Ocean and the um, ocean conveyor belt. And it was magnificent. I really was ignorant about all of this, how it impacts on climate. It, really, the whole climate is controlled by the swirling of this great ocean. But in your book, you talked about mythology and uh, narratives of previous times. And I, I think that what this Antarctic scientist was telling me was a little bit what earlier people 
um, might have been calling the great serpent and you mentioned this in one of your chapters and uh, this great serpent circles the earth and grabs its tail and its mouth and I think those ancient people at least knew to be frightened of this you know that it's a massive force beyond our control and we're talking about tweaking the environment and our Prime Minister's giving a, a billion dollars now to save the Barrier Reef which is ridiculous because we're still exporting coal and um, mm. I, I think we're not frightened of it in the appropriate way whereas perhaps ancient people who didn't have the science really got it this is cosmic this is massive and we need to um, respect it respect nature and I think your rewilding is part of that you know trust nature to restore itself if if you let it go but can you tell us the new story that would help us deal with the frightening things that we're hearing in the paper in the news we hear about methane permafrost methane eruptions coming out of the permafrost now in the um, arctic circle runaway climate change they use these words so this is extremely frightening and i think it just paralyzes people well so what's the news story you tell us the story (laughs) well yeah you can start Um, with once upon a time if you like (laughs) (laughs) i don't mind because people love stories I, i have a deep respect for stories and I think there are often more than personal stories so you know it's not just like I have a story to tell but it's also the other way around that stories somehow uh, have me inside of them they are they are more than personal they are so to speak larger than life and I've been studying from a uh, narrative and cultural psychological and Jungian perspective you know these deep narratives that shape societies and, and nations over centuries and some of my research has been not for me to you know invent the story or tell the story but actually see what are the stories that are emerging in our culture at this time as a response to climate change maybe you could say from a unconscious or a subconscious level in our culture I see four kind of narratives four deep stories that have archetypal roots um, coming up through many, many voices at this time. I'm also an economist. I work at Norwegian Business School. And um, one economic story that has been prominent over the last five to ten years in particular is the story of uh, greening growth, green growth, um, which I see um, rather than having just industrial growth pushing ahead with its heroic, maybe even Promethean thrust. We have a uh, alliance more with Gaia maybe, or the Earth as a living being, uh, which is symbolized with the color of green. And um, the green growth story, um, as I see it, is a story in which after a few centuries where we improved the, the machines, the capital, the labor to do more and more and more, uh, we now uh, shift towards a position where we get more well-being for or more utility for each resource unit. So let's say that, put it this way, this story. Back in 1750, 250 years ago, if you went down to the British Parliament, uh, you know, the overhouse with the British lords with the stiff upper lip, uh, and told them, listen guys, uh, in 30 years, 40 years, one person will be able to do the work of uh, 200 people uh, just in one day in terms of weaving. Then they would have laughed and kicked you out because it's completely incredible. And then, of course, the spinning jenny came around and people did that. One person could do the work of 200 people easily. And if we switch back to... Same thing happened with rail, by the way, in the 1850s. If you tell people, you know, in 50 years, one person can pull the weight of 200 horses in one day without a single horse, they would have laughed and kicked you out. 
Uh, and today, the green growth story says that, look, in 30, 40, 50 years, we can do maybe 50 or 100 times as much with one piece of, t- of timber or one barrel of oil or one kilowatt hour than we are doing today. This is what I call a radical resource productivity, where we create a circular economy where material flows are not linear, but they are circular. And each time we take a use a resource, we create more value from it. And we do not need to take all this um, excess that we've been taking from nature uh, previously. So reconfiguring the whole economy, making um, uh, let's say electric bikes rather than huge diesel SUVs, uh, uh, eating plant-based meat products, uh, using solar, um, wind, having water uh, being cleaner when it comes out of the city than it was when it came in. All these amazing economic opportunities to create value and, econo- and environmental benefit at the same time. That is the green growth story, and it's going to compete out the brown growth over the next decades. Um, so this is an economic story, and um, I think it's very important because it creates uh, a sense of trust or understanding that is actually possible. We just have to get rid of the ma- of the mindset uh, of economics from the, the previous century. Mm, that's marvelous. And- Marvellous discussion, yeah. and I love that you've been up this green growth. That's the bit I liked most in your book. And I wondered if I could throw to each of our guests to tell their own story of green growth. I know, Susie, up in your community, you are trying to foster a lot of that, aren't you? And um, maybe Lynn would like to talk about that. But I could just put in a sounding note here. Green growth, 75% of the story is on the positive opportunities. But we've also got people talking about geoengineering. We've got you know people in government mm. who are very like not to pick up the cues from the um, what we call it, the grassroots unless we vote them completely out of power this um, story has got a, a dark underside so Susie could you carry on with the idea of green growth and then Lynn so I live in a small-ish rural community in central Victoria and there's quite a lot of activity there that has been going on for many, many years and a lot of it has been around the development of sort of transition town-like visions Mm. and last year we had a a conference called Local Lives Global Matters where we had a number of paradigm shifters come and talk. David Holmgren's one of our homegrown local permaculture heroes who talks a lot about the relocalisation of the local economy and the importance of you know, distributed energy systems and things like that. And he comes from a, a town that's got the first community-owned two-turbine wind farm in Australia, which is nothing compared oh. to what you've got in northern Europe, but a, a great um, progression here. And we've got a town nearby that's wanting to become the first carbon-neutral town It's looking at various options that they can with sort of mid-scale solar and rooftop solar in their area. And one of the little examples I think I might have said to Vivian when we were chatting the other day was about a local group that runs out of a community house. So a community house is a is a, is a local organisation that we have in towns throughout Australia that sort of have computers for people to come in and use free of charge and run various um, sort of social justice programs in the, in the community. And through that, we've got a, a local harvest whereby once a week people gather together in the local car park, bundle into cars and go off to people's properties where they've got fruit trees that are abundant and dropping fruit on the ground and the person that owns the tree can't um, manage to harvest it all or doesn't know what to do with it or doesn't want it, not interested in it and the fruit all gets collected and part goes home of the volunteers and part goes to the person whose fruit tree it is and part goes off
after local schools or childcare centres, uh, or, or part gets bottled in a community, you know, fruit bottling, and then a team will come back later on and prune the tree and, you know, do pruning workshops and things like that. So there's a whole effort to look at the local food resources in a very, very dry very vulnerable part of central Victoria to teach people how to you know, make the most of the food that's already growing there as a way of reducing food miles and so forth. This is wonderful. I think just listening to you, I can kind of hear how people seem to create a sense of meaning in their lives by participating in these local activities. And this is what I mean with a larger story, that it's a story that kind of holds a group of people together. So these simple acts of harvest sharing or whatever becomes meaningful in a, in a much larger context. Yeah, that's right. It builds the cohesion in the community and the care that people have got for each other and the familiarity and all of that. Yeah. Wonderful. This is Lynn. I must be the most un-outdoor type of person who ever fought for the environment. <laughs> I actually did fight for the um, Franklin River and went to jail, but I'm hopeless. I can't even put up a tent. But nevertheless, I feel really good about the Franklin being there now. And I suppose um, there are a lot of people like me who aren't the outdoor type, um, apart from sitting on their terraces drinking wine, and um, which is a good thing. I, I think that you can still 
um, I notice in the city, I live right in the heart of the Melbourne CBD, that it becomes unnecessary to drive a car then because you can use public transport. You can walk by the river, which I find very sustaining, and that of itself can be your way of getting in touch, that you can participate in a lot of activities around spreading the word, so to speak. And what I've also noticed about my children, who thankfully don't take after me, my daughter particularly is in a community around her school and her children where they do all the things um, Susie was speaking of. They share food, they share cooking, they have celebrations of season changes and um, they do um, the Steiner School kind of approach to looking at the seasons and weathers and values and and so I, I do see that there are pockets of people in any part of, of the world, probably, and certainly any part of Australia. It's possible to honour honour the earth, I guess, and to take less and to give more. Mm. And beyond just um, recycling, which often gets sabotaged in my apartment block, but I suppose what impressed me about your book, which I think inspired me a bit, is people like me, because of climate change, we're actually becoming more aware of our connection to the mm. earth and beyond just a very simple, simplified idea of connection to the earth. And I think that's one of the positives about climate change, understanding and, ex- and facing climate change, that it can lead you to connect more with the earth. Yeah, I find that incredible, really, in the sense that uh, as long as you understand climate to be something way out there in the atmosphere and, uh, you know, miles away in the Arctic or, or climate is a very general average of something. But it's really about air we breathe, this participation we have, how we've changed the air around us, but then how also the air <laughs> nourishes us and holds us and, and participates in a very intimate way in our, you know, Every breath, um, I'm part of it. I think this is a deep reframing of climate change. You know, there's something, a technical problem out there which has to do with PPMs and ocean conveyors or Arctic ice melting, but it's about our relationship to this thing we're in, uh, this thing that holds us together. And that's, and I think collaborating in terms of caring for the air is really an issue that will enable cultures to dig in but also to connect uh, and uh, I think uh, since it is uh, um, the air is what connects us it's an uh, issue that in this century I think could help us uh, improve even global collaboration and take that to a new level as compared to what happened in the previous uh, centuries. Yeah well we're very aware of that here because we're a big coal, coal mining company country and we have a lot of um, asthma and you know heart disease and so on in the coal mining area because the air is not pure. But that brings us to the third part of your book, Pear, called Being Inside the Living Air. Mm. And I'd yeah. like to, Lynn to talk to you about the uh, chapter within that part called Standing Up for your, oh, to Your Depression, not for your depression, Standing Up <laughs> to Your Depression. Lynn. Yes, oh, I must say I love that chapter on the air. And um, I, I love the way you've... Your book is a narrative and not just a bullet point (laughs) tirade, which often is the case. And that you don't, it's hard to encompass it, but you can, I think, dwell in it. That's what I felt with your book, and it took me into a reflective place. So I I can't praise your book too highly, but uh, when I came to the depression chapter, 
I felt it resonated with me very strongly because in my practice, my counselling practice, people are sent to me already, you know, medicated to the hilt and told how they've got to fight these symptoms and um, no heed is taken to the context of their depression and to actually engage people to see, well, what was happening when you started to feel bad? What do you think that means? Is there something in your life you need to change? And uh, so on and so forth is the, is a much more constructive road. And I, I feel um, quite strongly that I think our profession, my profession, needs to change its approach to depression. And that, in fact, when they used to talk about, you know, this depression that seemed to come out of nowhere and then there was so-called reactive depression, most depressions have a source. It's just that most people don't really know what's bothering them. And even things like how the environment is um, causing them despair. I have a client who actually is seeing me because she's been working in environmental area and has become overwhelmed with her knowledge mm. and yeah. also the feeling that others around her are, are not not recognizing how this is affecting them because I, I do believe it is affecting us all and um, mm. I, I'm very encouraged by that particular chapter and also the recognition that the earth is sending us a message just like our depression is as you pointed out that the earth we don't have to make the earth kind of woman although she probably probably wouldn't be a bad idea but it's it's kind of like um well if if someone drinks too much and their liver starts to pack up there is a message in that <laughs> there is something Ooh. to be heeded and i suppose if we we I, I like what you say about heeding the earth and what you feel about um, psychology itself starting to take that on much more and move away from that correction of symptoms, suppression mm. of symptoms, actually. Yeah, you know, uh, psychology and particularly psychotherapy came out of a medical model where the thing was you should remove the symptom, you should sort of kill, sort of kill the symptom. But luckily, I think psychotherapy over the last decades have been moving strongly in the direction where we need to listen to symptoms mm -hmm. because they have a balancing function or they have a deeper connection that goes beyond the, the, the conscious mind. And uh, that um, if you really, really see the symptom as a resource, as uh, maybe a um, challenging friend, but somebody who kind of cares for you, then uh, it opens up to, uh, to, to, to uh, it's a like a portal to, to new meaning in your life. And this is what I'm this this approach in psychotherapy to the depression and the despair and the grief that many environmentalists are suffering from um, is a, a new approach that I think uh, psychology could help them. So that if I feel down by all the news, if I if I feel bad and I want to give up, rather than fighting that, so, oh, we must persevere, we must win, uh, which is in a way. Uh, as I see it, exploitation of your inner resources, just like industry is exploiting, over-exploiting our environmental resources. Many environmental activists are actually over-exploiting their inner resources in a, in a very forced way. And we've had a terrible event here in the Great Barrier Reef. It's one of the wonders of the world, and the northern part of it oh. has bleached. You mm -hmm. must have seen it in your newspapers. And it's yeah. our government um, says, oh, well, it's because of agricultural runoff, and we'll give a million or billion dollars now to, to stop 
stop all these agricultural practices. But it's not that. It's global warming that's, you know, creating this. The warmer water is creating this bleaching and that some of it's irretrievable. That's what the scientists are saying. And we seem unable to, our government list seems to be unable to react appropriately to that. And it seems to be that nature is actually calling out to us. And I wonder if they're not getting the message. So, Susie, do you have some thoughts about that? About Yes, well, I like what... Um, per you write in your book about that and about the that when we look at I think you talked about looking at the soul of the world not just into our own soul to understand what's happening and I you know I guess that is a message to us that the values that we have had that we have been letting lead and drive human development human civilization over the last few hundred years are not the right values that we need to be activating and promoting and, and living towards now and that it's more about being in touch with the, and in harmony with the, the whole of the world that we live in. I guess that's the message that the coral bleaching is giving us if I think about what Per you're writing about in your book. Am I on the right track? Um, yeah. Um, so um, why not explore that? Um, you get all this news about the coral bleaching, and I read it here, and I react too with sadness, and look at these amazing and very sad photos. Uh, what is the coral trying to say by, the, by this bleaching thing? And uh, um, if you had some kind of uh, community workshop on that, I maybe mean, could employ the arts, uh, let's say expressive art paintings, or how do I respond? Stories, emotions, words, poetry, maybe. The, the choral's response, uh, what kind of response does that ev- evoke in us? And, uh, you know, psychology has wonderful processes and, and group knowledge and uh, tools that can be used to explore that. I remember having a discussion once with um, James Hillman, uh, a kind of renegade Jungian psychologist, about um, the oil and our dependency on oil, just like with alcohol. What, so what is the oil really trying to say to us? What, what is it? Why is it? Uh, is it is, in a way, it's the, the blood of our ancestors, uh, plants that lived millions of years ago, and they're suddenly being forced up and burst and exploded into this world. You see, I'm, I'm just, I'm not saying there is the right answer to this. I'm saying we could explore this in a personal and cultural level. What is it trying to say? I was just thinking, Ferris, you were talking about Joe Risa, who's one of our environmental psychologists here, he's, a, he's an academic, and he always encouraged us to think global, act local, and respond personally. And in a way, that's what you've just suggested, that one could respond personally by feeling a response to these things as a way of doing something about it, but starting off, yeah, with, with, starting off with feeling it and showing mm-hmm. others how you feel about it. Yeah, because I think we already are feeling, but we are forced into a kind of technocratic discussion of uh, agricultural runoffs versus uh, CO, millions of tons CO2. Exp- uh, and all these are, you know, very technical, abstract notions that distance ourselves from the, the personal reaction we have. We actually do care for this coral. We, we identify with it. It's, it's, uh, it's a kind of sister somehow to Australia as a continent, uh, I imagine. And, and with this sister, is ill. How, how do I respond? Well, could I just come in here and change the tone a little bit now again? Because I had a Pakistani scientist speaking to us on the radio and he was talking about 51 degrees Celsius temperatures mm. in India. They've hit that 
level. That's unlivable for a lot of people. He explained why. It wasn't just because heat will kill you at that at that stage, but the people don't have shelter, they don't have shade, they don't have fans, certainly, and they certainly do not have air conditioning. And it's this reality that he said we need as global citizens to understand that great majority of the world's people don't have those things that will protect you, you know, like a solid house that will protect you. And um, I was very impressed by him. He said, until we see ourselves as citizens of the globe, we have to see this as our shared home and that we can make it a better place. And I think that's missing in the Western idea that we can actually do it, that we can make this a better place. And you've said something about we focused a little bit too much on the short term, the emergency, the crisis and all of that. But if we had a long term vision, like a long term 500 year type vision of where we're heading and what we really want in our society, we would be better global citizens because those people in 51 degrees temperature, that that is also us and we need to have that bigger picture in mind as we make policies and as we think about this. Yes, I think what we're spoken about, both, speaking about both the corals and with the, the Pakistani or the Indians suffering through a 51 degree, how do we perceive ourselves or uh, my, my, myself is that something that ends with the skin or am I connected somehow to the flows of water the flows of, of food and the flows of air and to other people other communities whether we have an inclusive self where we kind of expand it and include more beings both corals and humans in our sense of who I who am I uh, versus a more exclusive or uh, self where um, I kind of continue to um, cultivate this notion of of it's uh, it's just me it's me against the others and this experience of expanding the self so I include um, more of the others in the notion of who am I and who are we uh, I think that's that's core uh, an important important outcome of this work we're doing if we're letting the coral speak uh, listening to the people suffering from a 51 degree with some kind of sensitivity then somehow this expansion of the self happens more or less by itself and also in psychotherapy maybe in the beginning somebody mm-hmm. suffering from a symptom is very self-occupied but then by having a room in psychotherapy to explore the relationship with other important people suddenly they can care and listen to what others are saying in a much more open and inclusive way. So it's it's really a work of psychology this, to how do we listen to these people in a way that help us um, stretch out our sense of being and not cutting it off with with around the ego so to speak mm. yeah, we're nearly to the end of our time and so I'd like to sort of summarize we've talked about reframing um, the climate problem as an opportunity with green growth and I'm still worried that the democratic processes that we have now um, and much less to say in authoritarian countries the the capacity of the people who know this to influence the people who are leading us and making policy decisions it seems very fragile that's that's a problem but i'd like to summarize now and perhaps go around the three of uh, of you the guests to say well look the goal is zero emissions in a short you know, emergency time and a massive scale down, you know, drawdown of carbon dioxide. These are the things I would suppose we all agree on are the goals. But meanwhile, the media is calling us alarmists and Marxists as we started off talking. There are a lot of other barriers in the way of 
the speedy response and even that long-term vision. But in summary, could, could we just go around, um, perhaps you, Lynn, could go first, then Susie, and then we'll finish with Pear. Well, I guess what I learned from Pear is that there's, if you go into that sort of panicked urgency mode, you don't get there quicker anyway. So, yes, it does have to happen, you know, yesterday. We should have been doing this years ago. But if we, you know, try to be too shrill about it, no one's going to listen, no one's going to do anything. And that sense of helplessness that people go into when things seem overwhelmingly enormous and impossible is is very unconstructive. So I I sort of find Per's message very helpful in that we've still got to go about it the way we do in psychotherapy, perhaps not the five-year of Freudian analysis, but we have to be patient that, yes, the person comes first with their self-thoughts, their ego, and that's the, the general population, really, when you watch electioneering. Oh, what's in it for me? Towards being able to then see, oh, but what about other people? What about other generations? The social yes. good, the common yes. good. We used to be uh, able to have that. We, and I think perhaps in Norway and Denmark, and yeah. I've really been reading about corruption in the world and in your country, um, Norway, Denmark and New Zealand, you know, you have no, not, nothing like the corruption in the rest of the world. You're high on the level there. And I think that's partly because, you know, you trust each other and you can appeal to people in those societies a bit more than ours. We're, we're in a very low state here. We have to learn, don't we? We're, we're learning from you, Per. And I think that paradigm that you present of careful thought around this, not dilly-dallying, but nevertheless not rushing in like a fool mm. to fix something, to, to, to sort of suppress a symptom. Susie, do you have some more to say on that? Uh, yeah, just as a way of summarising and reflecting on some of the things that we've learned from Per's book and... Um, <clears throat> through the Australian Psychological mm-hmm. Society I've been sort of distilling a lot of the work that Per's been doing and other uh, people who've written on the psychology of climate change and I've got it down to sort of the seven key steps that sort of jumped out as me and we've talked about several of them today because of course they've come from your book Per plus other people's books and so one of them was um, about dealing with feelings um, and responding personally and feeling it and sharing feelings and acknowledging the feelings that you've got and giving space to other people to also acknowledge that the feelings that they have about climate change <clears throat> so that we so that we're really relating to it and we don't slip into all those different ways in which we can distance ourselves about it and then another one was then to talk about it you know speak up about it challenge break collective silence and things like that and to be using uh, social norms to you know communicate the message which another one I think that comes through really strongly in your work per is about creating visions so telling stories that are a story about a, a, the bountiful and beneficial ways in which we can live together cooperatively and share resources and living in a, in a zero-carbon economy. To the listeners, we're talking to Pierre Espen-Stockness, whose book is called What We Think About When We're Trying Not to Think About Climate Change or Global Warming. Pierre, could you tell us now, just another story, tell us the leaders. Who are these green growth? I, I loved it when you were talking about that, these things that seemed impossible, unthinkable to previous generations, and suddenly they were the reality, and we've been through a century of very rapid change, and now we can expect the 21st century to be even more rapid. So picture some of these things you you said someone like Elon Musk and uh, quite a few people you mentioned right through your book who you admire tell us where you think we're leading we're heading oh um, okay I would first like to pick up to something you said about democracy we seem to be moving yeah. too slowly and, and it's like uh, too too short term yeah. and uh, I really like yeah the guy who said the, the, the UK Prime Minister during the war oh 
Churchill. said that democracy is the worst way of governance. Churchill. All other, <laughs> Churchill, all others uh, we've tried. And I think there is a deep wisdom to that because uh, democracy is not something we have. It's not something that kind of just works. We have to make it work <coughs> each year. And, uh, and you're, you're expressing your frustrations in terms of the politicians un- unable to kind of do the right thing in terms of the coal and the climate yeah. change, etc. And, and that's right. And, and they are, in a way, um, reflecting some budgets. of the worst. They have a lot of money to throw around. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, and uh, they are reflecting the state of our public, which isn't really on board with this new story yet. Parts of us are, parts of society is. And we need to, I would love to have this science approach where you find the rational and then push from the top down the international agreement, the global carbon price, uh, the, the, the right cost-effective policy solutions. But it's not going to happen unless we have this widespread policy support for, for these democratic processes, because otherwise they can't do it and get re-elected. So the, the real reason why I wrote this book was I, I was frustrated about how climate communications were working. They were not generating this pol- bottom policy up support we need. And all these individual actions, all these feelings and all the work we can do with connecting with nature again, it's not going to solve the climate problem. Individual actions are not enough but what they are is really building this web of mutual interactions that will result in uh, increasing um, bottom up support for the policies uh, needed and this is where what makes me really optimistic uh, is that we're seeing so many hundreds of thousands of NGOs, communities, uh, cities, businesses, everybody is very frustrated by the top-down approach not working and then they're not sitting down giving up but they're doing creative, innovative um, and I'm also with feeling things that this is the right way to go. So I see this kind of groundswell, a huge wave of, of change now coming through engaged people, engaged NGOs from everywhere. And we will make democracy work. It just is an excruciatingly, frustratingly slow <laughs> process uh, to, to move, shift this. But, but it is going to happen. And when we look back in 2030 or 40, we're going to wonder um, how come we, 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 we were so slow at, or didn't believe it would happen. Yeah. I think it's inevitable. Great. Thank you very much, Pierre. Really wonderful to talk to you. That's a magnificent discussion. I think you, you know, have thousands of people who will listen to this and then onto the podcast, and I think you give a lot of heart to people. So thank you very much for that. And thank you to our other two guests, Lynn Bender and Susie Burke, who have um, helped me give the psychological depth I needed for this conversation. Thank you, Pierre. Thank you for the warm words and uh, a good talk. Thank you.